If you turn your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, pray that you'd help us to understand your word and to receive it with humble hearts. Strengthen us. Give us faith. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read together Proverbs chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 1 down through verse 12. God's word says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. Uh, turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. This is God's word. May he bless the reading of it to our hearts. It's a well-known passage, especially verses 5 and 6. Perhaps this is your favorite verse or a life verse of someone that you know. Uh, I'd like to consider this text in, in whole, just so we're getting a sense of all of the lessons Solomon is trying to teach his son. And this is uh, an appeal from a father to a son. Uh, even as you read some of these and you see some of the applications right there, they kind of, the applications make themselves trust in the Lord, acknowledge God in all your ways. This really is uh, my appeal to you too. It's a father to a son, but doesn't need to stay only at home. Certainly it's applicable at home, but it's from a pastor to people as well, to do these things and see God's blessing. Several aspects of this text really contribute to how it teaches us. And as you might expect in uh, wisdom literature, Solomon is very wise in the way that he teaches, not just in the content, but even there's, there's lessons embedded here, I believe. It's like he's teaching in multiple layers. And you may have noticed as we read through that in each pair of verses, there's a clear alternation between our action and God's reward. Did you notice that? Don't forget your teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. For what? Length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Just because chance? No, because God is doing this. God is recognizing your action. Verse 3. Do, don't do this. Don't let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And what happens? Here's the reward. Here's the blessing. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of man. And these are very natural pairs of here's what you do. 
Here's what God will do. You also notice in the first verse of each pair that there's a negation and an assertion. Don't do this. Do this instead. And both of these ways that Solomon is uh, teaching his son really permeate all 12 verses. We won't go through and look at every uh, instance of it just to enumerate it, but uh, in each wise action, there's something not to do and something to do. And this is instructive on several levels. On the one hand, it is an effective teaching tool, isn't it? Uh, if you say, what, what do you mean by that term? Well, not this, not this, not this, but this. And when someone teaches you that way, you realize, okay, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that, but it's this. Uh, famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones was famous for doing this, and he would often really, and he has an effective way of helping you set your mind on exactly what he's talking about, exactly what the Bible is talking about by saying, not this, it's not this, it's not this, but this. And there's something to be learned when it's trust in the Lord. What, what is maybe the opposite? What is not trusting in the Lord? Leaning on your own understanding. Acknowledging God in your in your all your ways, maybe the opposite of that is being wise in your own eyes. So what are these things that need to go away if we will live wisely? There's something instructive about that. This is really a useful way of teaching children. It's a useful way of teaching adults. But this uh, negation assertion, this don't do this, do this, it also kind of demonstrates, you can almost feel the turning aspect of this passage. Don't do this, do this. And it's kind of demonstrating for this child what his life ought to look like. If you see this in your life, turn away from that and choose this path instead. He's setting in front of his child two paths. And it would make sense that a wise person would be able to diagnose himself and realize this is a path of sin that I need to turn from. And that he would be marked by repentance, obedience, doesn't it? Obedience means not doing certain things. Certainly it means doing the right thing, but it also means rejecting the wrong things. Don't take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. There's an example from the New Testament. See the evil and turn from it. Note the sin and forsake it. So there's, there's this alternation in this passage between what the father is telling the son to do and then what God does. There's this forsaking of wrong paths in favor of right paths. But finally, I want you to notice that there's kind of a flow between these verses. If you pair them in fours, so verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 8, and then verses 9 through 12, there's kind of a flow here between these three sections that teaches a broader lesson. If you look at verses 1 through 4, you see it's kind of like an introduction, but then he's... Instructing his son about his character and what that character will accomplish for him and bring to him. You can almost say the heading of this section is, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. And the reward of all of keeping all the commandments that he's about to give is length of days and years of life and peace being added to you. What does that look like? Good character. And you have favor before God and people. But then what's the blessing of trusting in the Lord and following God for direction and fearing him in your life? 
It's actually personal and internal. You have refreshment for your bones, healing in your body. You stay on the path that God makes straight for you. You have maybe in short endurance for your life. And you can see how there's kind of a mounting blessing, not just favor with people, but longevity and, and blessing in everything that you're doing. But then what's the, what's the final lesson and what's the, the, the culminating blessing here? It's a little bit different how he talks about it in the fourth set. He talks about giving and then he talks about discipline. And then did you notice where's the, where's the promise and where's the blessing in verses 11 through 12? Verse 10 is your, bow, your barns are filled with plenty. Your vats will overflow with new wine. What's the, what's the blessing of the last one? It's almost like it's missing. All the other ones have it, but what is it in verse 12? It's actually the greatest prize of all. It's that God loves you. If you see God's discipline in your life, that actually might seem like the worst thing you could imagine. But in fact, it is the best. So don't reject the discipline of the Lord. That's what not to do. Don't loathe his reproof. What's the blessing? What's the duty? Well, those aren't exactly enumerated here, but the promise, the blessing is for whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. And that's exactly what this father is doing to his son. Son, keep my commandments. Listen to my words. I've titled this, sermon this evening, Wisdom for a Good Life. Wisdom for a Good Life. And Solomon isn't really, he's not teaching us how to make life go our way, right? Maybe maybe you know a person like this that is a professional rule follower to make all the good things come my direction. I have a friend who even when we were in college, he just had this knack of knowing how to make money just kind of come his way. He wasn't, he had utmost integrity. He has his uh, MBA now, and he's successful in business and things like that. But he just had he just had that business mind, and he knew how to make make money, cash flow his way. And I was like, "How do you do that? Like, what gave you that idea?" Some of us know how to make just good things and ease flow our way. Solomon is not teaching how to manipulate God. That's not what I mean by a good life. This is really a course in how to live life in God's world as God's child. And I think that's especially clear by verse 12. This is how to live life successfully in God's world as his child. That is the chief blessing here of this lesson, to observe the love of God in your life. Psalm is really teaching us how to humble ourselves under God, our Father, how to submit ourselves, subject ourselves to his design for how the world works. This is really a way of relating to God as we submit to his design for how the world works. It's wisdom for a good life, skill to live in God's world. So notice what I'm calling in the first four verses, the skill of obtaining life's blessings. And of course, in all of this, we could see it as a way to just manipulate and just get the blessings. And that's not it, but there is a skill that's required. And what is the skill in God's world? First, it's heeding the Father's teaching, which almost certainly is conditioned, well, is certainly conditioned by the words of God. 
My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life. That's where I'm drawing that from. Life's blessings, a long life, peace they will add to you. These words will give you security and wholeness. And he exhorts him about his character. Don't let kindness, or this is the word often translated as loving kindness, this covenant loyalty, this loyal love that God has for his people. He entered into a covenant with his people. This is the kind of love that's on display in a loving and loyal and devoted husband toward his wife. He made vows to her, and he's never going to forsake those. This is a reflection of God's, it's the word, hesed. Don't let that leave you. And truth or, or reliability, faithfulness, don't let those depart from you. Are you good to your word, son? Do you keep your promises? Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of, their, of your heart. Make them part of who you are to your core. Don't just wear them as adornments for show for other people to see. They're the hidden person of the heart, is what he's saying. He's addressing him about his character. And what, what's the blessing here? You will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. You may have a cross-reference there. Maybe just the wording puts in mind Jesus' growth as a boy. He grew in wisdom and in stature. Luke has apparently had this extended interview with Jesus' mother Mary in Luke chapter 2. He's recording a lot of things that Mary had observed in the life of Jesus. And we just have some of these brief windows into the life of Jesus. It's Luke 2, maybe 52. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He was growing intellectually. He was growing physically, just like all the rest of us, except without sin. There were no, there were no blocks or, or, or uh, places where, where knowledge and understanding was coming in, where it was getting stopped up because of sin. He grew in these ways and in favor with God and man. Surely, Jesus, as a young boy, had this kind of godly character in his heart. Loving kindness, reliability. At what age could Jesus get left at home by himself to care for all of his younger siblings? How soon did his parents trust him? Probably a lot sooner than they trusted me right? and most of us. He was faithful. He was good to his word. He received instruction from his parents. He had good character. The first part of having the, the skill required for obtaining life's blessings is to embrace loving instruction. Do you know Jesus received instruction from Joseph and Mary? They taught him how to be a man in the world. He learned that. He received it. He was in a, a nurturing environment, and he never rejected it. He always took it. I think about, we talked uh, maybe last week about David coming into his reign and really navigating some 
difficult situations very effectively, but Solomon did the same as well. You remember that his brother, Adonijah, crowned himself king while David was an old man, and there was this near disaster, and David ended up sending people with Solomon and crowning Solomon in his place instead. And Adonijah is terrified, and he goes, and he's in the, in the, at the tabernacle holding the, art, uh, the horns of the altar, and this is something for Solomon to deal with. What is he going to do with his brother who's trying to steal the throne? He lets him live in mercy, but then Adonijah comes and asks for this woman who is ministering to David to be his wife. And it comes to be known to Solomon that this is requested. And Solomon is putting him to death based on his own word to try to continue to get the crown. And David really gives some remarkable advice to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2. As David's time to die, die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, this is a commandment. Maybe we don't have these kind of commandments in our lives because we're not kings. But this is certainly Solomon. If he's a king, he's probably talking to his own children, who one of them very well may be a king. And he's had this experience in his life and seen it to be true. David says to Solomon, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful in their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now you also know that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. He also shed the blood of war in peace. He put the blood of war on his belt, about his waist, and on his sandals, on his feet. So act according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. So Solomon all of a sudden has some decisions to make. This is his blood relative. How does he keep his father's command and wisdom to deal with this man? And it's, it ends up being very simple in a certain way of speaking. Joab simply has to be executed. But there are some more complicated ones. Be kind to Barzillai, the Gileadite, because he was kind to me. Remember Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, who cursed me when Absalom chased me out of Jerusalem. You remember how Solomon dealt with these. He dealt with them in integrity. He dealt with them in faithfulness to his word to his father and in, in love to the Lord and his people. Remember Shimei was told, okay, you can live in Jerusalem. If you leave Jerusalem, you're going to die. He's like, oh, great. This is a great deal. And then he just forgot. After three years, it just wasn't, wasn't front of mind for him. One of his slaves ran away and he went to go find him. And Solomon found out and Solomon was right to execute him. He had agreed by his own word to abide by that. Solomon had embraced this instruction from his father to rule justly. You have to embrace loving instruction 
to obtain life's blessings. That's part of the skill of life in God's world, but you have to embrace godly character. We mentioned Jesus. And as I thought about what Jesus was like, what came to mind is 1 Corinthians 13, famous chapter on love. This is the kind of love that ought to mark certainly every Christian who is living by God's wisdom. Love is patient. It has a long fuse. Love is kind. It's easy on people. It's not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Jesus did none of these things. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is godly character that we need if we're going to succeed in God's world. And who is sufficient for these things? Can I, can I perform my own heart surgery and write these things on my heart? I cannot. You cannot. We don't have the power to change ourselves. But what is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit that the Spirit produces in a person. Headline A1 in the phone book, right? Love. Joy. Peace. Long-suffering. All of these wonderful godly traits. If you do not have the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you should not expect to see the blessings of God in your life. Certainly, as Solomon is writing to his sons, we're, we're in a part of Proverbs that is uh, wisdom in discourse, and this is very much rooted in the law of Israel. And you see here references to the law, length of days and years of life, and peace they will add to you. This is very much rooted in God's covenant with his people. If you obey me, I will bless you. You're, you will have sheep to fill all the pasture lands that I'm going to give you. They're not going to miscarry. You think of the blessing that Jacob had. That was kind of a foretaste of what God would bring to all of Jacob's people, all the people of Israel. So Solomon is really, in, in wisdom form, teaching his son to observe the law, isn't he? God, God wasn't after just the externals of the people. He wanted their hearts. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not just your arms. Yes, you will do it with that as you lead the lamb to the altar. But really with your heart, God is saying. We must embrace instruction of wisdom and embrace godly character and you will find favor and good repute in the sight of god and man what does god think about you this verse tells us 
God looks with favor on those who have godly character. Is that their own doing? No, it's actually his work in their hearts to give them a new heart that, that loves him and that desires to observe his law. And if that's you, isn't that grace from God to save you and then also grace from God to view you with such grace, with such favor? He doesn't, he doesn't have to treat us that way, but he does. He's loving. He loves his own. This is skill for obtaining life's blessings, but in the next set of verses, you could say he's describing the skill for enduring in godly living, not just, not just coming to the point where you are godly, but then how do you live your life through the end of your life? And how do you stay faithful to the Lord? How do you endure in godly living? Verse five, I, I'm drawing this from, look at verse six, he will make your paths straight if they're not straight and if they're full of rocks and roots and bumps and pits, you're not going to endure on this path. But God will make your path straight. Look at verse 8. It will be healing to your body, refreshment to your bones. If, if your body is breaking apart in life's journey, you're not going to be able to make it all the way there. So how do you endure? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. There are perhaps many things we could say about these verses, but I'll just say this. He's saying in verses 5 and 6, forsake self-confidence for faith. See that? Forsake self-confidence for faith. Do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Lean entirely upon him. This isn't, I'm kind of hanging on and leaving half of my weight, not entirely on the Lord. No, lean entirely on him. You must have him and nothing else. Forsake self-confidence for faith. Do you remember with Joseph? It's really striking to me. He has these dreams and they're almost self-interpreting, aren't they? Hey, guys, guess what dream I had last night? Do you really think we're going to bow down to you? Uh, that's what I thought it meant. Maybe not. Okay, Everybody understood what these dreams meant. There was no doubt about their interpretation. The doubt really came about, when are they going to be fulfilled? Because he gets thrown in a pit and then sold as a slave. So Joseph knew what was going to happen. His brothers kind of didn't want to admit was what was going to happen. And Joseph may have been tempted to say, well, God, but what about this? But then when you see the rest of the life of Joseph, he wasn't full of self-confidence, was he? He actually lived by faith. And you see this in, in several ways. Certainly, I think he's an example of acknowledging God in all his ways as are many other godly people in the Old Testament. But when he's with Potiphar's wife, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? God was in the front of his mind as he's working in the house, as he's enjoying the privileges of his position, as he's dealing with people in the house who are under him, maybe somebody who's late to work or whatever else. He's, he's thinking about God. God is in the forefront of his mind. 
wasn't bitter against God for not immediately fulfilling those visions. He knew that God was going to keep his word. God had revealed something to him in these dreams. He wasn't full of self-confidence. He was full of confidence in God. He trusted in God entirely. And that gave him the kind of clear vision, didn't it? That by the end of everything that had happened, he knew, oh, this is what God meant. It wasn't just going to be me ruling over my brothers. It was going to be me protecting my brothers and preserving your people. If he had been full of self-confidence, he wouldn't have had that kind of clarity. But he had faith all along the way, depending on the Lord to follow where God led him. Forsake self-confidence for faith. It's hard to live by faith, isn't it? You just don't get to see it. Self-confidence almost makes something tangible that you can touch and you can feel. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. James says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, but let him ask in faith, not wavering. For that man who wavers and doubts is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. It's, you know, I think I want God's help, but I, I kind of want something else too. If you've been with us in Christian Life Hour, especially the group that's been up here most recently, you know, this is a little bit like what the kings were doing in the time of Jeremiah, especially Zedekiah and Jehoiakim, they were really curious what God said. And they wanted to know, is there a word from the Lord? And Jeremiah says, okay, let me go ask. Or yes, there is. But were they really looking to hear from the Lord because they wanted to obey? No, they didn't trust the Lord with their whole heart. They wanted to hear from God so they could weigh their options. When God speaks, what's your attitude toward it? Do you lean on your own understanding like the kings of Israel? It's really striking if you read through the book of Jeremiah and those interactions with the kings, how many times they come back to Jeremiah and it's really just like they didn't like what Jeremiah told them the last time. Or when Jerusalem is finally conquered and Jer Jeremiah is with the remnant and they're saying, okay, go to God. Whatever God tells you, we're going to do it. And 10 days later, Jeremiah tells them, don't go to Egypt. They say, you're lying. We're going to Egypt and you're coming with us. And Jeremiah's, they don't really trust in the Lord. They're leaning on their own understanding. They're leaning on their sight and their fear and their self-preservation. They're not living by faith in the words of God. Forsake self-confidence for faith, but also forsake foolishness for fear. And I say foolishness because who is wise in his own eyes? It's actually a fool is wiser in his own eyes than 10 men who can give a shrewd answer. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Forsake your foolishness. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Forsake foolishness for feel, fear, fearing God. The idea here of healing to your body and refreshment to your bones, I think is echoed in Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to get to this image. Running the race 
with endurance, setting aside that the sin that so easily besets us. Uh, the writer of Hebrews actually refers to don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord in Hebrews 12, and that's why we'll get to this image as we have time. But then later in the chapter, he says, therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. It's the image of setting a bone right. You, you have a race to run. And if you're being hobbled and if you're holding on to things that are weighing you down, you need to put them off. Foolishness is one of those things in the Christian life. It's native to our sinfulness, to our flesh. We are born rejectors of God. We are born fools. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction drives it far from him. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Do you only keep your own counsel? What's the opposite? Fearing God and turning from evil. Is it really that simple? Is it really that simple to, okay, I'm going to stop listening only to myself. I'm going to posture myself in a certain way before God, and I need to turn from every known sin. That will give you a kind of clarity in your life that foolishness and hanging on to your own counsel will never give you. Solomon is encouraging his son in the skill of enduring in godly living. Self-confidence is going to kill you. Foolishness is going to crash you out of the race. Live by faith in the Lord, leaning on him, trusting on him, bringing him to the forefront of your mind, making connections to him throughout your day, asking him for help throughout the day, punctuating your day with prayer, and live in fear of him. Fear of evil, fear of what would displease him. This is really a heart condition. But then finally, Solomon, after he's showing a skill to obtain life's blessings and the skill for enduring in godly living, he draws his son's attention to the skill of relating to the invisible God. And this is really where it culminates. It's directly about you and God now. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Verse 11, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. This is a relationship. How do I relate to the invisible God in whose world I live? There are certain skills required. And what are the two skills? Honor God from what he entrusts to your stewardship. Honor him. And then submit to God in what he intends for your maturity. God gives you things that you should honor him with, and God brings things into your life that you should submit to him about. These are, the, these are two components of the skill of living in God's world. How does he interact with his people? Well, he gives them things with which they should honor him. And he does things to them under which they should humble themselves. That's skill. That's living by faith. And when he says, honor the Lord, is he talking about a tithe? 
We use this word, a tenth. Moses, Abraham gave a, a tenth to Melchizedek. Jacob told the Lord he would give a tenth to the Lord of whatever he gave them. The Lord instituted a tenth in Israel that they were to bring. You could write down Deuteronomy 17. Actually, there's something instructive in that passage. Deuteronomy 17. I'll just turn there and read for you for sake of time. Deuteronomy 17, 22. <laughs> Deuteronomy 14, 22, I believe. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. Why? So that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. God commanded them to do this so that they would learn to fear him. There was something about this lesson of bringing the first of the crops, the first of the herd, the best of what you had to the Lord that taught fear in Israel. We could go on and look at the rest of that chapter. There's something instructive there for us. But God, yes, commanded a tithe in Israel. That's not the word he uses here. Honor the Lord from your wealth. I was reminded this week. That when the verse says, honor your father and your mother, does that mean obey your parents? Got a whole row of kids here. So I'll talk to you guys. When the Bible says, honor your father and your mother, does that mean obey your parents? Do what they tell you to do? Yes. Is that all that it means? No. Honor is more than obedience. Honoring may be when mom speaks to you, you stop doing what you're doing and you turn and look at her because you value what she has to say. You esteem her words above your play. That's honor, right? So it doesn't say obey the Lord from your wealth. It says honor the Lord from your wealth. How can you honor the Lord from what he's given you? Could it be by giving a tenth? Sure. In the New Testament, that's not really commanded a tenth anywhere. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9. He really does apply the principle of sowing and reaping. Let me read this to you. Talking about taking a collection ahead of time. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's just, that's just wisdom for how God's world works. If you're going to be stingy, then you're probably going to receive a lot of stinginess. If you're just really generous, you're going to receive a lot of generosity. It's how the world generally works. It's really often how God interacts with people. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you only cast a few seeds out, why would you expect to get a whole field of crop? If you really just throw it all out there, you can expect a good thing to come back. But he applies it to giving. Each one must do just as he has purposed or planned in his heart, 
not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. God favors and smiles upon cheerful giving. God's not commanding, give me a tenth. God doesn't need our money. God knows that there's something good for us in giving. God certainly deserves honor. God came after the children of Israel, didn't he? And rebuked them about bringing him the blind and the lame sacrifices. That was a reflection of what they thought of God. God said, take it to your governor. Is he going to be pleased with this? You remember when Solomon had all of these different tribes feed him and his, his court 12 months out of the year. It's kind of convenient. 12 tribes. You know, this is, this is Dan's on the menu this week. Oh, it's Ephraim. Yeah, baby. Okay, I kind of imagine how this works. And you've got to imagine that these heads of these tribes, what did they want to do? We're giving him the best hummus we've got. We're going to outdo Judah down there in the south. Okay, they wanted to give the king the best. This is what you do for someone that you honor. And this is what God deserves from us. Not just, how does this work? How does your budget work? Okay, I planned everything out. Oop, I've got 97 cents left in my budget. Where can that go? Okay, yeah, oh yeah, I guess I should give this year. That's not the first fruits. That's not honoring the Lord. It's giving God a priority of place. It's giving God a priority of, of prominence in the way that you think about what he has given you to steward. Honor what God, honor the Lord from what he entrusts to your stewardship. And there's that principle of sowing and reaping. This isn't the prosperity gospel. This is very much rooted in the law of God. And this was, you could say, this was a promise that Solomon and his son could take to the bank. Your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Honor the Lord, but then submit to him in what he intends for your maturity. Very quickly, don't reject the discipline of the Lord. Have you known children? Let me put it this way. I was recently reminded from a godly older couple as they were dealing with one particular child of theirs when this child was young. They would often ask, are you sweet? Because even after discipline, the child isn't necessarily sweet. Sometimes it is coming ready for more of a fight, right? Is that rejecting the discipline of the parents? God says in Amos, if a calamity comes in a city, has not the Lord done it? We can't see God. God doesn't write in the clouds, hello, this is discipline in your life. We have to apprehend this by faith. Is it possible when God brings something into our lives that we, someone suggested this, only attribute it to secondary causes and say, well, that was just a fluke or, you know, it was probably the Chinese or it was this or it was, it was that, okay? We talked a lot about this a couple of years ago. 
if a calamity comes upon a planet, are we willing to attribute it to God as God is willing to attribute it to himself? What, what difference does it make, Pastor John? Well, if you're never willing to say, God may be doing this in my life, you're probably never going to be willing to say, God, what are you trying to teach me by this? So, Pastor John, are you saying every time my car doesn't start, God's disciplining me? I don't know. Every time something bad happens at work that God is disciplining me, I don't know. That's not my, that's not my role in your life. Uh, but are you, are you sensitive to God's intervention in your life to correct you? Are you willing to say, okay, God, I don't know what this is for, but you have my attention. Surely that is not rejecting the discipline of the Lord. If we're never willing to say, okay, God, this was you. If it's always, oh, that was a fluke and I just need to figure it out on my own. And man, I can't wait till this is done. That's resisting the discipline of the Lord. You're not willing to be taught. Submit to God and what he intends for your maturity. I think a really sobering negative illustration of this is the people of Judah. After 586, they've gone to Egypt against the command of the Lord. Jeremiah has now come back to them and said, God's going to chase you here and punish you in this place. Jeremiah 44, 15, then all the men who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods, along with all the women who were standing by as a large assembly, including all the people who were living in Egypt, responded to Jeremiah saying, as for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. Can you imagine hearing that? But rather, we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and were well off and saw no misfortune. But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have met our end by the sword and by famine. This is a completely twisted and wrong interpretation of what has happened in their history, except for the idolatry. It is true that they were idolaters and their fathers and their kings throughout all their history. But they're saying, you're telling us that God is disciplining us for idolatry. We're not going to stop because the last time we stopped, we started suffering. And they're wrong. That is rejection of the Lord's discipline. It is loathing his reproof never to turn from sin. If God reproves you, it's because he loves you. And that is the greatest blessing. If you see God's discipline, we talked about it this morning. We heard about it this morning. God is correcting you because he delights in you. And he wants something good for you. He wants you to have the wisdom of the good life. Are you willing to take it?
Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you love us. We thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to rescue us from sin. Lord, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to us, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. This wisdom of which we speak is moral wisdom. And the skill with which we must live in your world is the skill of obedience and humility and repentance. Lord, you are gracious to forgive if we will repent. Thank you that you do delight in your people. Help us not to resist your discipline. Help us not to wilt under it, but to endure it for your glory and for our good and the eternal comfort of our souls. We pray this in Christ's name.